I want to uh, welcome everybody. Uh, it's our fifth uh, in the series of webinars looking at uh, telehealth. It's great to have all of you with us this afternoon. Um, special welcome, I think, to all the associations and societies that are joining us. Really excited to have um, some prominent leaders and thought, uh, thought leaders in the industry with us today. Uh, very great to have you with us. We've got a strong mix of uh, specialities. We've, we're looking at uh, predominantly psychologists on the call today. Uh, a lot of biochemists, OTs, uh, significant amount of physios and, uh, and speech therapists. So we really want to uh, welcome you as well as all other disciplines um, to this environment. As you know, we try and create a very relaxed uh, atmosphere. It really is a discussion process and hopefully um, our panelists will be able to secure um, some really good information for you that can help you in your practices as we move through the hour. Um, just to mention, this, this webinar is sponsored by the Spesnet Global Group uh, with the support of, of EasyMed. And um, we have been able to secure an ethical point uh, this afternoon for you, which will be supplied through our Daxa Academy of Health. Um, as soon as you've registered um, and we've got your details, uh, we'll be able to furnish you with, uh, with, uh, with those details, with that certificate. Um, this webinar, I need to uh, reinforce, is recorded. Um, so you can look at it at any point in time. You're welcome to go to the easymed.solutions uh, platform uh, for the, a copy of the recording as well as all previous um, webinars that we have had. So all that information is nicely packaged and stored for you and hopefully can, uh, can add real value uh, for you. Um, please remember to use the, the question and answer tab uh, as well. Um, and what we will do is attempt to answer those questions for you as we move through the afternoon. Questions that we can't get to, or we don't have time uh, to, to bring to the fore uh, will be answered. And, uh, and those answers will be supplied on our, on our platform for you as well on our, on our network. So there, you will get responses to, uh, to the queries that, uh, that are pertinent to you. Just to introduce myself, uh, I'm Colin Atkinson. I'm, uh, I'm the Global Commercial Executive for the Spacenet Group. Um, I'm standing in Falani uh, this afternoon. Uh, you'll, you'll remember her from the previous uh, four uh, webinars. I'm not sure I'm as eloquent as what she is, uh, but I'm gonna do my very best. She's come down with uh, some laryngitis and really struggling uh, to, uh, to communicate at this point in time. So we wish her, we wish her really well. Today, in terms of the panelists, we've got two really exciting um, contributors. Um, the first uh, is, is Neil Hopkins. Neil is, uh, is Cape Town based uh, as a, as a biochemician. Um, he's currently working in, in private practice and uh, is an adjunct lecturer at, at UCT. Neil has a, has a postgraduate diploma in business administration from, from UCT, in addition to his honors in, in biokinetics. Um, Neil has lectured on business management and practice ethics at UCT for over 10 years. He's also been involved with, uh, with BASA on a regional and national level, um, as well as being co-opted onto various HPCSA board committees. Um, he's currently completing his master's degree in bioethics and health law at WITS. And um, I think you can, you can see that he's uh, extremely well qualified to, uh, to provide some decent insight for us this afternoon. Then we have Dion, Dion Burrs, uh, a regular contributor. Um, Dion, as you will have heard, is, is a director at Profnet uh, and Profnet Medical, a member of the Spesnet Global Group. Uh, he really is the brains behind our practice and practice management system called, uh, called EasyMed. And, uh, and, and Dion has been with the organization for many years. He's a physiotherapist in training, has an absolute passion um, in the medical software environment and uh, has been working diligently with the, the team of Spesnet uh, developers and, uh, and customer delivery teams to provide the best in practice solutions, uh, which, uh, which can significantly enhance your practice. So we're really excited uh, to have Dion uh, with us um, in this environment. Dion, thank you and welcome. Neil, absolutely stunning to have you with us. Um, I think I'm really just gonna open with probably the most prominent question and, and one that's on many, uh, many practitioners and allies um, thinking, and that is billing, what can really go wrong? Um, so it, it seems easy, sounds easy. And maybe uh, Neil, you can give us some insights into where people get themselves into trouble um, in, the, in the ethical billing or non-ethical billing practices. 
and um, and some of the problems they get themselves into. So Neil, I'll I'll hand over to you for the first uh, first commentary. Thanks, uh, Colin, for the introduction and uh, Dion for inviting me. And I wish uh, Lani all the best in in getting better and uh, dealing with her laryngitis. It's not ideal. Um, so with regards to the question of what can go wrong, lots can go wrong and uh, we spend a long time and I think Dion's knowledge on this and uh, the journey that he's been on with EasyMed can, can fill a lecture for, for an entire day. Uh, so there's lots of stuff that can go wrong. I think if you look at uh, 2018 stats, there were 22 billion uh, rands worth of, of fraudulent or wasteful claims that were made. So there are mistakes. Um, people make errors in terms of their, their, their claims, silly errors, but they're, they're errors nonetheless, and that adds up to wastage. So if the medical aid has to process uh, claims that have got the incorrect name on them or they're missing information or they're using the incorrect codes, that can go into the wastage category. Then there's going to be the category of, of fraud, and that's where, where you've got individuals who are trying to cheat the system and there are a number of ways of doing it. Uh, uh, people are very creative when it, come, when it comes to fraud and the, the systems that they use. And it's, it's happened before telehealth. It's happening now with telehealth. And I think that at the moment, there's more in the category of people being desperate. Uh, that we, we are in very trying times and money is tight. And I think that that just kind of pushes the people into the category of, of, of uh, the, the incorrect claiming and uh, you can see from some of the schemes, they're already reporting errors with, with claims, uh, uh, your, your classic over-servicing, uh, your classic overcharging. There's a difference between the two. Uh, I think that a lot of people just blanket everything into over-servicing and they hope for the best. But uh, over-servicing would be if, you, if you're giving people more than what they need. So if you should give the person a consultation, uh, go for it. But if you're then consulting them on every single day of the week, is that really clinically appropriate? So if you're a psychologist and you've scheduled a, a Zoom call or a, 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 a telehealth consultation or a teletherapy consulta consultation uh, on the Medici platform, you, you would have to say, well, yes, I've got uh, this need for the client, but I don't need to see them every single day. I don't need to communicate with them every day. That would be over-servicing. Overcharging, on the other hand, is a different, uh, uh, different scenario where if you had to say a psychiatrist was consulting and they gave you a, a seven-minute consultation but billed you 850 rand for that seven-minute consultation, that's overcharging. And if you look at the schedule of fines, uh, over-servicing is, is more serious. That's you starting at 20,000 rand for the fine. Uh, overcharging, you can start off with 5,000 rand for a fine. Um, but uh, you may also be slapped with the insufficient care fine as well. So that can get you to about 10,000 Rand. On top of that, then there's the fraud, which starts at 20,000 Rand. So there is a lot that can go wrong with, with your, your claims process and incorrect claiming. And I've got a couple of slides that I can go on to just now. I don't know if, if Dion wants to jump in with anything from his side um, in terms of his experience. Yeah, thanks, Neil. Um, I think the overcharging and over-servicing is always a, an interesting debate. And people often use these terms as if they're interchangeable. So thanks for the clarity. Another one that we'll possibly talk about later is uh, uh, canvassing and touting and, and understanding what exactly that means. Um, but uh, I think as far as the, um, the, the HPCSA goes, I think we, we, we uh, if you go through the, and this is really, I always encourage this in any lecture, not that this is a lecture, but when I'm speaking to people around um, ethics, the best way to learn is to learn from other people's mistakes. And the HPCSA for one, and I know we've got uh, clinicians here from Allied HPCSA Nursing Council and so on, Social Work Council. Um, but the HPCSA is really good at publishing the findings. Um, and you can actually go on there and go back many years, um, 10 years, and it's all in Excel sheet or PDF that you can put into Excel and actually go and search on. And it's fascinating to see because you can actually learn from your own colleagues. You can go and search for PT or BK or whatever it is that picks up that, that HPCSA number. Go and have a look and see what they're up to and what they've been fined for. Um, and, and the vast majority, having looked at it, I think last time I looked was the end of last year, but it's, the, the trend is, is, is pretty much the same is that sort of 80% of these are, are, are um, billing uh, issues, billing uh, 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 reports to the HPCSA, where a patient is saying, uh, I was billed this, I didn't know that the medical aid wouldn't pay, I haven't signed any consent for this treatment, suddenly I get a bill and so on. So I think a lot can go wrong and the HPCSA being our regulator and who we're accountable to, has got a nice summary list to go and have a look at those. Um, 
But um, yeah, I think it's it's important that you have that informed consent in place to make sure that that these checks and balances uh, are in fact looked at. Yeah. Okay, Neil. I think we'll uh, we'll we'll move into your presentation and. Uh, All right. So Let's get presentation is, is a very generous term. I think uh, it's, it's, it's cool <laughs> as a slide. <laughs> uh, a couple, a sure. couple of slides. Slides, yeah. So uh, everyone is uh, obsessed with evidence-based, so they won't believe it until there's a research paper. And here we go. Here's a research paper in terms of a seven-year overview of, of uh, ethical transgressions in terms of claims and complaints. Um, so this paper is a little bit outdated. It's 2013, up to 2013. I uh, spoke to Dr. Quinder earlier in the year, and uh, he's got a whole bunch of HPCSA data that he's waiting to analyze. Um, he, he's earmarked it for either a, a master's uh, or a BCom. So if you are interested in research and you want to go through all the data, you can obviously get uh, stuck in with uh, analyzing this information. But just to go through this paper here, um, table number four, if you scroll through to that in the research paper, and I've, I've given the, the, the paper to Lani and she can distribute it. What you can see here is fraudulent conduct makes up a significant component with, with regards to the, the, the claims against medical professionals. Obviously against doctors, they represent the, the, the largest number of individuals registered. Uh, obviously the, 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 the paramedics have a, a, a significant uh, representation in the Health Professions Council. But if you had to look at the, in terms of medical professionals like doctors, they've got much higher presence than physios, bios, and podiatrists. So you can see they'll, they'll represent more in terms of the number of, of claims. So as a percentage, you'd be interested to see how many um, practitioners and the rate per practitioner per claim. Uh, but this here, you can see a large number of claims with regards to fraudulent conduct. And you can see what Dion referenced earlier is also in the research paper, about 80% of the claims are about um, medical billing and, and, and ethical claims processes. So I always reference the, the three categories. It's somewhat unfair, the first category. I refer to the dumb, the devious, and the desperate. Uh, when it comes to ethical infringements. So if you don't know about the ethical guidelines, okay, I don't know where you've been living and uh, why you're not familiar with them, but sometimes it's the legalese, sometimes it's the fact that you, you, you haven't searched the appropriate sources, but uh, you should be able to, as an autonomous medical professional, know about the ethical guidelines. So those individuals who, who submit wasteful claims because they just didn't know any better or they were taught an incorrect um, pattern of claiming, the next is the, the devious category, and those individuals, they're in the minority. They really, really are in the minority, but they are, no matter what you tell them or how you teach them, they're always going to try and sail as close to the wind as possible. They're trying to get their claims in and get their money out. And no matter how, how you try and teach them about the ethics, they're not going to, to really get it because they want to know the ethics so they can get around the ethics. And the last category is where we're sitting at the moment. Uh, with a lot of individuals with this, this uh, COVID-19 pandemic is that we are going to see a lot of businesses closing, a lot of medical businesses closing. So individuals are going to go into that desperate category. They, they want to survive. And uh, then there are going to be increases in claims and wasteful claims. So I'm going to share my slides now with uh, this, the kind of uh, almost like a peer-to-peer -peer chat with, with Dion. So we're going to go through these different categories and their role in the claims process. So it's a very, very pale blank background. It's as simple as you get, but we're going to unpack it in terms of the hierarchy because I think that everyone thinks that it's all on the same level, but uh, there is a bit of a, a hierarchy to it. And we're going to dive in straight away with, with just talking about peer-to-peer -peer and how you learn um, about coding and, and the, the coding process and how you might make mistakes and how your peer group can help you. So who falls into the peer category? Well, obviously it'd be your other practitioners, but no one likes to be the snitch and tell them, listen, you're doing something incorrectly. So generally we don't talk to our, our, our mate down the road who's, who, who's maybe billing unethically. So that role is taken over by the professional bodies. So if you had to look at the Biokinetics Association or the Psychological Association or the, the Physiotherapy Association, they would be a peer body. They would help educate you as to how you should aim and how you should process your, your, your claims. But often the, the documentation isn't listened to. It, it's, it's drafted, but it isn't read. And it's, it's important because your peer group can help you avoid penalties and help you avoid mistakes. 
another uh, role of peer would be someone like Dion, who is, is a qualified physiotherapist who's come along and he's got a product which would be easy med. And that makes your billing and claim process a little bit easier in terms of you can't put the wrong stuff in. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's on the railway tracks. It can go forwards, it can go backwards. You're not really drifting from side to side. So from, from a peer to peer perspective, we've got a lot that we can learn from that. And Dion wants to touch also on the, the stuff that we shouldn't learn from, from peers. Daniel, you know, I, I lecture the final year students at, at WITS and um, it's always an interesting conversation to see sort of where they're going to go to next. And there's a, there's a good handful. I always ask the question, who's going to private practice as soon as they finished with, uh, with community service? And it's shocking always how many put their hand up. And we always encourage people to go into private practice, find yourself somebody who, you, who, 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 who is a mentor to you, who can support you in your, both your clinical work and your growth, um, as well as setting up and building a business, uh, your practice. Um, and, and I always emphasize to them how important it is to, is to be selective about where you're applying for work because that person's shaping what is your new norm. You're looking up to them as a senior, as a mentor. And very often we hear the excuse of, I didn't know it was wrong to do it this way. That is how I was told to do it from the first place that I started working at or my boss and so on. Um, and your point about uh, clinical autonomy and uh, ignorance not being an excuse is important. We have to empower ourselves with the information. We're ultimately accountable for that. Um, but it does go a long way to make sure that you select your peers appropriately because uh, you can learn some really bad habits and get yourself into trouble. I think you get stuck in that, uh, that claims dogma where it's always been done, therefore you're going to continue doing it. And you have uh, claims templates. That's a big problem. When, you, when you're claiming according to a template, you're going to, to come short. I'd also like to just add the point that you talk about the claims dogma is that um, the, the other part is, listen, let me try this. Uh, let me see if this ICD-10 works. Let me see if this code works. Submit that to the medical scheme and rough stuff here. They've just paid for this. So I see that as an acknowledgement that they have reviewed the claim um, that it is appropriate and that I'm on the right track. I should be using Z50.1 only or this code does work if I want to know. This code works. In other words, the scheme pays for it. But the question is always, is it an appropriate code for the patient that was in front of you at the time? In other words, the diagnosis that you're treating and the treatment that you've done on the patient. Leave the coding for last. Uh, don't go in with a mindset that I'm going to be coding this and charging the following because you never know what you're treating and you've got to be billing what you've actually done the treatments on. Um, so it's important to, to, to frame that right and go in with the right mindset um, and, and be sure that you avoid those template billings and, and getting yourself into that, that, that kind of rut of this is how I roll all the time. Uh, Dion, just uh, before Neil kicks off um, on, on, on his next point, is if you look at that, that coding practice um, and the billing practice inside of the framework that you've, uh, that you've laid down, what, what is it that has made funders uh, reluctant on the, in the telehealth platform mm -hmm. uh, initially to, to reimburse um, healthcare services given through this? And, and what is it that system should be addressing Okay. Um, in, in that framework to uh, to ease the mind and to make sure that the practitioners are, are protected. Sure. So, so the first the first anomaly I'd like to just clarify and just just state up front is that 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 there is a perception out there that schemes don't pay for telehealth services, and I think we need to check ourselves on that. Um, there are a, a there there is good support and evidence for 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 engaging in telehealth as a channel of patient engagement and treatment uh, in 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 in, in collaboration with the other channels that you would use, not as a replacement for everything. I think it's another tool that really empowers the practice to reach out. So, so we must be sure that I, I can give you a, a, a list of schemes that do in fact pay for telehealth. Um, people always ask, but does discovery? And the answer is yes, they do. Um, but there's, it's important to make sure that your, 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 uh, your ethical framework is, is sound and correct. Make sure that you've got informed uh, consent for telehealth. And we all know we need informed clinical consent we all know we need informed financial consent, which is really important to ethical billing. Um, but the informed uh, uh, consent to telehealth is an ad additional uh, document that you need to have signed by the patient um, uh, uh, prior to engaging in that. Um, the other part also is that there, there is additional technical requirements in submitting your claim. Um, and Neil, Neil was sharing an example earlier, which you can maybe elaborate on, but schemes are saying, but we haven't got the, the required documentation or the, the information that I need to, to process this telehealth claim. And, and some of the key ones are uh, which codes should you uh, be, which codes are reimbursed for telehealth? Um, you'll note I didn't say which codes should I use in order to get paid for telehealth, which codes are reimbursed for telehealth? Um, 
And, and if that is what you're providing to the patient, then that will be reimbursed under that. But be sure that you also include your place of service indicator. Um, and we're finding a lot of uh, PMAs, the practice management system, the building systems, on stepping into that space. Um, but code 02 is a place of service indicator, indicates that it's telehealth services. And that will then be paid appropriately from those benefits that have been available, made available by the medical schemes uh, for telehealth services. So, so check, find out. If you're not sure, ask us. We can send you those lists. Um, you, you're able to access who pays for telehealth services and what rates and all of those things uh, through, a, through a, a, a proper system that will call that for you in real time. Um, so be sure that your systems are providing that. And then the last one is an, it's, a, it's a cautionary. And that is tying back to Neil's point about over-servicing. Um, we all know that there's a desperateness of, I'm sitting at home, I can't get to my practice, my patients can't come and see me. Unfortunately, we're moving to different levels of, of lockdown. Um, telehealth is another uh, tool that you can use in your practice, but suddenly we don't want it where everybody's now suddenly having um, follow-ups post-treatment for three times to find out how they're doing when you never did that before, uh, or it might not be clinically appropriate. So be sure that it's clinically appropriate to what the patient needs. The HPCSA is allowed for uh, telehealth services. Um, allied HPCSA is allowed, is allowed for it. The Social Worker Council is allowed for that. Um, but I know the HPCSA will be reviewing the status after. And we will continue with this. And what we're looking at this close to this um, is, is, is paying careful attention to has there been over-servicing. We have to be sure that we use this appropriately and responsibly. So, what, so, so what you say? example of that over-servicing is uh, if you look at the, the, the lockdown level five, if a practitioner has 30 days of lockdown level five and they're submitting 25 um, claims for one patient in that level five lockdown, I don't know how you're going to justify that in your clinical notes as being uh, best practice. Uh, if you're normally seeing somebody uh, maybe once a week and then all of a sudden it's now 25 line, or not line items, 25 uh, individual sessions in a 30-day period, that's over-servicing. Sure. And at the same time, if that's ever questioned, uh, you need to have your, your notes um, readily available and be sure that you've got evidence of the interaction with that patient. Um, there's some thinking that you should, if you're having video consultation with the patient, actually get a recording of that. Um, I'm of the opinion that you need to have a record of the fact that that interaction did happen. Um, but the actual recording of that video, I think there's a lot of um, uh, questions around that. Um, uh, and, and also be sure that the patient is consenting to that. I'm not sure if a patient's going to quite be themselves when they know that the session's been recorded. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I'm behaving a little bit differently knowing this is on record and being recorded. It's different for the Allied Health Freshens Council, have, that's one of the requirements is that they have to record. But uh, it's a massive barrier to sale. People don't want to be recorded. And uh, a number of practitioners lost clients as a result of you have mm -hmm. to record this. Uh, and it, it's not ideal, um, but it was a requirement for the HPCSA temporarily. It's now been dropped. Yeah. Um, but uh, the Allied Health Freshens Council still has that as one of their requirements. But uh, it's, it's, it's not ideal. But what a, a tip from my side would be is that once you've finished your patient, patient consultation is to give a written kind of summary of what you've covered in your session to your patient. So even if you're sitting there and you're capturing it live with the patient and you just propagate a, a, a spreadsheet or just an email while you're sitting there and you, you educate the person and say, listen, I'm just going to be typing some notes while we were going through this. And then you send it off straight away as a summary. Then the person on the other side has a record and also you have a record. So if the medical aid comes to challenge you, you can say, well, actually here, yeah, I've sent a patient education documentation to the patient, giving them information on what we did in the session. So it's important to, to empower your patients and have collaborative care, not just yeah. uh, one-sided, you, then you write it into your booklet and then the patient walks away with nothing because then they, they sometimes will feel disgruntled. You shut off the camera and they're like, well, what did I just have there? Did, did I have a session? Was it a session? Does that count? Was it a chat? So giving them feedback is important. It's also why it's yeah. so important to make sure your channels of communication are professional ones. And it sounds simple, but if you're using WhatsApp, your patient has got your personal cell phone number, they're WhatsApping through that, unless you've got WhatsApp for business. But I think generally, as you talk about WhatsApp, we're using um, um, those systems. And, um, and, and, and they're not, they, they, don't, they don't realize they're actually engaging in an actual formal consultation. So um, it's about setting that consenting up front and making sure that that SMS that I sent to you, that text message and that conversation is actually on record as part of my clinical interactions. Um, Colin, I'm going to just leave uh, the, the session for a second to power up. I'm about to lose my battery. <laughs> no problem. So I think it's a uh, perfect time for us to, to uh, move back to uh, Neil and uh, 
Neil, sorry, to di I've, did I digress the conversation around? Uh, no, 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 not at all. It's fine. But, it's, uh, good to, it's good to digress. Yeah, uh, like absolutely. I said, this is a very boring background. I'm sure people have got uh, screen fatigue ready from the white background. But um, if you had to look at the peer-to-peer the, the -peer category, we, we've all got very strong personalities. I think as medical professionals, you need to be confident in yourself. You need to be confident in your ability. And sometimes we don't want to hear that we're doing something wrong. Uh, if, if a peer, peer approaches us to tell us that we've, we've maybe coded incorrectly or we need to lift our game with the coding, often it's met with hostility, which is bizarre because it's, it's almost like it's a, it's a gift of knowledge. Like we don't want you to get caught out. Here's the, here are the tips as to how you could be better. So it's, it's sometimes maybe a little bit of humble pie needs to be eaten from time to time when a, when a colleague approaches you and, and holds up a mirror and tells you to start looking at either your, the way that you're practicing or your claims process. So irrespective of who the peer is, whether it's a professional who works alongside you, whether it's a professional body, whether it's a, a company, uh, or even if it's, if it's someone along the lines of, of a, a malpractice, uh, like insurance um, broker who might give some 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 tips obviously they're not financial um practitioners but uh if you do get input from others try and pay attention and listen to the message behind it rather than attacking the messenger so the next category would be the scheme all right so often schemes are made into the villains and i think one scheme in particular draws the ire of many many practitioners but the schemes are there to manage a fund and they're a business. So they're, they're out for profit and they, they, they obviously pay their shareholders, whatever it might be to, to manage the fund. But the scheme has its role in the food chain. They, they're there and often they, they'll look at claims data and some schemes are very good with the statistics behind the scenes. And you see the, the information that they have and the spreadsheets that they have and the claims data, it's phenomenal. And so when they challenge you on your, on your claims process, it's not just kind of very flippant and they just like pick a random number. They're doing it for a reason. And they'd have assessed all the claims data and they say, who are the outliers in this claims process? And if they flag you as an outlier, then they start to investigate and they say, well, A, who are you working alongside? Is there a pattern with other people who are working alongside you? Uh, what particular patterns are you uh, displaying? Are you claiming according to a template? Do all your patients have a particular uh, coding style? And so they start flagging you based on your claims profile. It's not a witch hunt. They're not trying to kind of catch people out. And if it's the first time you've made a mistake, they're not going to kind of report you to counsel. They're going to see like, is there a pattern here? Is there a professional pattern? Is there an entire professional body claiming in a particular way? And once they've found that, then they'll challenge you. All right. But they're not the end of the line. They're not the, the, the supreme authority. They, they have their place in the food chain. Um, they can say to you, listen, uh, we've noticed these errors. We're not going to pay. Uh, I think there was a, uh, a, an issue recently with biokineticists where, where there were claims issues in terms of incorrect claims processes. Uh, but it's not the same as, as what happened with physiotherapy with the clawbacks. And I think, Dion, I don't know if you want to jump in here with, with the clawbacks. Uh, there yeah. was a thing in 2017 with biokineticists having, uh, physiotherapists having uh, particular codes rejected and uh, the medical aid one in particular wanted to claim back money yeah so yeah i think um i'd like to refer everybody to the um if, you, if you're not aware of the document it is available at the hbcsa and um and and all credit to the physio society for for driving that um and and the concern is really off the back of uh, medical schemes uh, positioning themselves in what would seem to be a a punitive position um uh, and almost uh, uh, stepping up as a regulator to tell us what you can and can't do as far as your, your treatments goes. Um, and we must always remember that the scheme is there to reimburse for services that have been rendered. They're not your regulator and you're not accountable to the schemes. Um, so where schemes do say to you, uh, uh, hang on a second, you know, we're gonna now take punitive action and you feel that you're in the right, you should challenge them to say, report me to my council, my regulator, the HPCSA, allied HPCSA and so on. Uh, and even to the police, if you feel there's a criminal act of fraud. Um, because they are not the, they, they're not our regulator. We're not accountable to them specifically. Um, but it is important that they also manage their, 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 their payments. So they have got a fiduciary responsibility to, to manage the pool of money that all members have put in and to pay that out appropriately. Um, and they can, of course, say that uh, um, we, we're not paying for the services, not in the benefit. Um, but coming back to that previous statement that I made of saying I've submitted my claim to the scheme and they've paid it, so everything must be right. Um, do you understand that schemes are processing a lot of claims on a daily basis? 
And what they would do is typically pay it if it's technically correct. Is there an ICD-10 code? Yes. Is there a proper RPL? Yes. Uh, the, the, the procedure code. And then they'll pay that. It's systems that make those payments. And then they retroactively go and look at it and go, so have we paid correctly? And is there something we need to correct? And the legal framework does allow them to do that. Um, and they would then go back on that and say, hang on, we did pay this, but it's paid incorrectly. Let's reverse those or, or, or dock that from future payments um, as a correction. And it's, and it's that that is, uh, was raised at the HPCSA. Um, and I think it's a seven page document and worth looking at and reading through um, in what you should do, what your position is. Um, and there's recommendations there on how you should handle those, those situations as well when it comes to the clawback situation. So we can always put that up on our website as well if anybody's interested in that document. So it's important to realize that uh, you're an autonomous medical professional. So there shouldn't be anyone who tells you how to code or how to claim their guidelines. So the reference price lists and the ICD-10 coding guidelines, but no one can really say to you, you must code this way. You must use this code and not this code. If you've got it on RPL, you can't be told by the scheme that um, this particular code, you should use this code in its place because then it becomes creative coding. So you need to be very careful of that. So as an autonomous medical professional, you need to choose the, the codes that you have used in your session. And I think that was one of the issues of the clawbacks is that the, the scheme came back and said, we'd like you to use the following codes or you can't use the following codes. But if it's in your clinical judgment that you've used those codes and you've, it's reflected in your patient notes, then it, it, in all intents and purposes, if it's, it's got the right ICD-10 code, it's got all the other rules of the RPL, um, all those criteria met, then the claim should be processed. Mm -hmm. So it's important to realize that, yes, the scheme doesn't have uh, authority, but they can also... Uh, if you are making unethical claims and you are making errors and they're justified in their process of challenging you, it's not like that now all of a sudden every single challenge that you get from a medical scheme you're going to kind of uh, ignore. They yeah. do have the ability to stop funding you they, 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 or the patients that see you. So they do have some power and that's try to ignore them but realize that it needs to go higher than them. And that category would be to see the professional bodies. So for them, it's the Council of Medical Schemes. For us, it's the Health Freshens Council or AHPCSA if, if they're going to challenge uh, the claims. So it's important to realize that with the, the, the claims that you submit, um, if, if you go into the creative coding uh, and you, you have your, your, your unethical patterns of billing, that you can be referred to the professional body. Uh, and then you can be, uh, it's very seldom that the, the scheme would do that, but they can. They can refer to the Council of Medical Schemes and then the Medical Schemes Council will take action or if it's needed to go to the Health Freshness Council, they will take action. And what are the, the actions that they can take? And I think everyone just assumes that you get struck off the roll. <laughs> there, there are other, other actions that they can take. So you can be fined, you can be suspended, you can be struck off the roll. You can also do community service. So there are a number of actions that the Health Freshness Council or AHPCSA can take against you. So it's not immediate, okay, I've, I've transgressed, I'm gonna be chucked off for fraud. I think there are, there are steps before then. So the, think, Neil, the, the role of the professional body, yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes people look at those uh, judgments and they say, but this person did uh, unethical billing and all there was all there was, was a fine of 20,000 Rand or whatever the case might be. But I just want uh, to, to, to caution practitioners out there that that process that it took from the time of the complaint to get to that final resolution um, has certainly does not go down as a happy time in your life. Um, it, is, it is an uncomfortable, difficult time to go through. Um, and, um, and it's something that you want to try and avoid at all costs. So um, rather stay on the, on the right side. And actually, when, if it is referred to your regulatory board, um, very often in the regulatory boards, um, it's in fact your peers that are there again when it comes to the preliminary hearings. Um, so, so always ask yourself the question is, if, if my peers knew about what I was doing and the way I was billing, um, would they find this appropriate or not? What would your general peer be doing um, in a case like that? Um, because that's how you're going to be held accountable um, should you have to stand in front of your regulatory body. Um, it's those peers that are going to test. And if you're concerned about what you're doing and you're kind of trying to hide it, you know, you don't quite want to show your friend, your bro your brochure and your marketing of your practice because you know that they're another healthcare provider. You've got to pause and ask yourself the question, um, where's this going to end? Uh, Dion, we've got, a, uh, we've got a question here, I think, which, which is mm. appropriate for this discussion point, which is uh, from Hester, Hester Hayesimon. Yeah. Mm. Um, she's saying, surely your, your billing... Uh, to the patient should be according to the codes available and appropriate and, and not who actually pays for that uh, for that consultation. So yeah. maybe you want to share your view um, in that space. So absolutely. Yeah, thanks Esther for your question. I think that's a, that's a great one. And it also ties in another question that we saw on the feed there um, relating to who's my contract with. 
Um, so so there's, there's, there's three parties that we're talking about here. It's the medical schemes or whoever's paying, the payer, whether it's the Department of Health, whether it's an employer, whether it's an IOD, RAF, there's the payer, there's the patient, and then there's a the healthcare provider. And of course, you as the healthcare provider are contracting with your patient, and I trust everybody's got the right documents in place in the contracting with the patients, informed financial consent, not just financial consent, informed clinical consent and in telehealth inform, uh, informed telehealth consent. Um, and that you have those in a drawer that we, as and when you need it four years down the line that you open that drawer and find the file full of the documents you need um, because that's when you're going to be holding your breath um, so the contracting with the patient is an obvious one and i trust everybody's got that in place um, the, the the patient then has a contract with a medical scheme um, as a contributor to that scheme um, and there's certain accountabilities and, and payments that are required there but there isn't a contract typically between the practitioner and the, and the, and the medical scheme or the payer unless you've signed up to some form of network arrangement um, and there where you have signed up to a network arrangement, please, that's where the, the loop is closed. That was typically birthed out of PMB and trying to manage PMB expenses. Um, but be sure that you read the terms and conditions there because that will speak to what you can and can't bill um, as far as the rate goes and other terms and conditions. And if you've signed that, you need to comply with that contract. Um, so, so pause, don't just fly into that and sign those agreements. Uh, be sure that you look at those properly and carefully. Uh, but to ask this question, absolutely. I mean, you're going to be uh, billing the code for the patient that's in front of you, the diagnostic code of what you're seeing, not a cheat sheet. And you're going to be coding the, 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 the procedure or the treatment or the consultation that you've done with that patient appropriately to that patient. You then decide if you're doing that at, your, at the medical scheme rate of the patient uh, for their benefit, because then they're not out of pocket. Or if you're charging it at your own rate, where the patient will then need to be paying that and they'll get whatever medical aid or assistance they can get from their scheme. But it is very important that we don't, uh, we don't create the environment in which we're saying, well, this patient is that payer, so for that reason, I can charge the following codes. Um, or I might even, worse still, say, well, they pay for that code, so I'm in fact gonna do that treatment on the patient. It's got nothing to do with your assessment, but just the fact that they can be paid. So, so absolutely not. So I think you, 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 you bill for the treatment that has been provided. And if the, if the scheme or the payer is not covering that, the patient would be liable for it. So just one thing on that, um, yeah, it's important to, to code according to what you've done in your session uh, and that's patient specific. But uh, one thing you need to make sure is that if you're coding for an item that you've actually spent significant time in the session dealing with that line item. So if you say that you're doing passive range of motion with the client, that you've actually done passive range of motion with the client and it wasn't just one stretch that you're just putting it on there so you can get a, a claim back. So make sure that you actually do what you've got on your, your, your medical aid claim, that it's actually been rendered as a service. Mm. And another point I wanted to touch on with this in terms of why we're dealing with schemes is that uh, we, we get influenced by patients. So a patient might come through and say, you know what, I've got this medical aid benefit. I've got all this money. I'm paying towards my medical aid we can submit claims. And then there was a case in the past where personal training was done and biokinesis would be using the, the, the medical aid fund for personal training. And that's been flagged as documented. It's in, in that research paper. And that's a problem where you, you, you then creatively gaming the system. And when you think about it, it's one person. Yes, you're dealing with one person uh, or a select number of individuals who might want that. But if you had to look at it on a scheme, like a big picture, if you had to universalize that, that fraud, so everyone was allowed to commit that fraud, what would happen to the fund? And that's what happens with medical schemes is that they try to protect the fund. They try to protect the, the, the pool of, of money that they can service people in need. So if you have somebody, yes, they're, they're, they're justified to claiming, yes, they pay their, their premiums. But if it's going to be that they're claiming for personal training, they're claiming for frivolous claims uh, on behalf of somebody else, then it becomes a problem. So it's got very a, important to realize. Uh, Neil, we've, we've got, a, uh, I think, um, an interesting insight as well, and maybe a question from Mariette uh, Deist uh, is wanting to know, um, really, what kind of documentation do you need to submit once there is a complaint against you? So, so we, we, we're obviously providing the guidelines as to, you know, don't take a chance, let's call it. But, um, but once there is a complaint against you, uh, you know, as opposed to using attorneys uh, to submit let letters, which, um, according to Maria, she feels is not is not good enough, and rightfully so. What documentation uh, could you expect to need to supply once you've got this complaint? Dion loves this one. Dion, who do the notes belong to? <laughs> right. So that is a good question. So, so, yeah. Um, 
I think what's important is that you as a clinician, you're making notes on, so, so the, the leading question here really is, should you submit your clinical notes, right, Neil? Um, yeah. and, and you'll have that from medical schemes. And I think Mariette's question is also aimed at, at the HPCSA when there's a complaint there. So it's important that we double back to that side. Um, but from the medical scheme point of view, if a scheme is asking you for your patient notes, that's typically the wording they will use. Um, then by all means, they can phone the patient and ask them for the notes the patient made on that interaction. Sorry, I'm being facetious. Um, but they would come to you saying they want the patient notes. Now the question is, who's those notes that you make clinical notes on when you're engaging with a patient? Who do those notes belong to? Um, it's my strong view that those notes are mine. If I'm the clinician, I'm going to put myself in a, let me say physiotherapy because I'm not a psychologist, but I think the, 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 the examples are stronger in that space. I might be making notes in my clinical notes about the patient that's not necessarily in their best interest to see. Um, I'm making a summary and objective view of what I'm seeing in front of me. I've got my plan and I'm doing my plan of action. So I can remind myself why I took this course of action rather than that in five years time when I'm asked for, for my clinical notes or some kind of insight into what I did with the patient, I can't quite remember. Um, if there's a request from a scheme, for example, for a report, um, I'm not going to copy those notes and send it through because the, the reason I wrote those notes is not with a report writing mindset. It was a patient notes for myself to remind myself about what I saw and what I'm doing next. But I'd use those clinical notes. I'd go and draw them. I'd draw them, put them next to me. I'd say, okay, I'm writing a medical aid report for motivation for additional treatment. And then I'll write a report based on these clinical notes, but the report will be written accordingly for them. Um, similarly, if it's a medical legal report, I will write it differently if I'm doing it for that reason. If I'm writing it as a sick note, it's going to be a different way I'm writing that. I'm not just going to copy those notes. And similarly, when it comes to defending your position at a scheme, that's saying to you, we all understand exactly what you did. I'll bring my notes along. I'll hold them here and I'll say, oh, I remember that. And this is why I charged the following. This is what I've done. Um, we obviously do know that if those patient notes needed to be shared uh, and you ever did share them, you'd need the patient's permission to do that first because it's personal information of the patient to any third party. And secondly, we do also know that those notes can be subpoenaed from you where you will then need to submit those uh, through a subpoena from a court of law. Neil, I don't know if there's other legal angles you want to add to that. Truly, I'm going to touch on the, the legal aspects just now, but um, there, there, there are numerous uh, references in our legislation to privacy and confidentiality and consent to sharing is very, very important unless you've got a, a legal uh, requirement for it. So the first thing you need to do if, if the medical scheme approaches you is number one thing, who do you call? Your broker. So the first thing is you phone your broker and you tell them that you've been approached and they will then step by step walk through the process that you need to go through. You also don't have to attend the meeting alone. Okay. And you shouldn't be signing anything that they slide across the desk to you. So do not be bullied into signing anything. So they might say, if you don't accept this deal today, there's going to be X, Y, and Z consequence. When you, when you speak of the broker, you're talking about the medical malpractice insurance broker, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Not your medical aid broker, your malpractice broker. So for your liability insurance, the first thing, if there's any complaint or a potential for a complaint, the first person you contact in writing, okay, is your broker. So you can phone them, but you have to send it in writing as well. So very, very important. Can, can we expand on why that's important? Well, the thing is, if it's a patient that's approached you and they're complaining about something, you don't know the way that you may make yourself liable or accountable for your words. Uh, it's that, that, that old adage, if you have a car accident, to not get out of the car and say, I'm sorry, because then you've admitted liability. Yeah. So when you go through this process, if there's a complaint against you and say a patient's uh, aggrieved that, that, that you've done something, say, I can't reach out now, phone the broker and say, what do you recommend that I do? And then the broker will advise you on that process. Because the last thing you want to do is, is, is uh, say something out of goodwill or like uh, uh, positive intent that you, you feel sorry about something, or you've made a mistake, and then you, 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 make the person yeah. aware of it, that that can be used against you in a court of law at a later date. 100%, 100%. I think there's a, there's a second element too for those who are using uh, claims made policies. Now it gets into, into a bit more detail uh, on policy structures. Um, but those of you, and I think there's a vast majority on this forum that are insured uh, possibly through CFP brokers. And I know that there's specific wording in there, but it's the wording you're gonna find in, in all claims made um, policies. Now why claims made rather than um, uh, on incident, is a claims made policy has got it's cheaper typically but you have to be covered in three parts um, uh, you have to be covered at the time of the incident when the patient was injured for example where the complaint was generated you have to be covered at the time when you became aware of that and reported that and at the time that there's a payout when the process is unraveled and there can't be a gap between any of those 
but it is one of the terms and conditions of claims made cover that at, at the earliest time that you become aware that there's a potential claim against you, you must notify the broker. It helps them assess and manage the underwriting risks and so on. Um, if it's found that you've got a patient who stormed out of your practice and said, I'm not paying this account, you didn't ask me to sign anything, I'm not happy, I'm gonna take this further, and you don't notify them, and a year later you suddenly get this letter, and they go, but hang on, you've known about this for a year and you never reported it to us, and they could repudiate the claim. Yeah, and that's expensive. Mm. Very. <laughs> I suppose, right. uh, again, Neil, we, we really are interjecting in the, in the process, but um, I think I'm trying to obviously knit in questions from the, from the audience. So, so Sue, Sue Buerta has got an interesting one for us, which I think fits into the framework of, of a claim against you. Um, mm -hmm. And really it's around the cost, uh, around why different medical schemes would have, uh, would have different rates for the same procedural code. And, and this ideally could be leading to, uh, you know, to claims against a practitioner who is not really understanding that correct billing practice. So maybe I'll bring this in here, but yourself or Dion can really, can really take this. And, and, and the question is, is it ethical, um, you know, that, uh, that medical schemes have different rates for the same, same procedural code? So Which here's a tough one for you. Say so again, Neil? Which particular discipline, which practitioner, um, so profession? It, it, it really is, um, it, it's open-ended um, in terms of the question itself. So I haven't I come across that with, with biokinetics. Uh, I'm, I'm not familiar with, with different rates from one medical, medical scheme. Uh, as far as we, we have, it's A rate. Dion, do you know anything different? So, so I think the question was, how come if I, if I do the same treatment and the patient is insured by medical aid one who pays 100 rand and medical aid uh, two that pays 110 rand for the same service, the same uh, RPL code, but there's different rates for that depending on which scheme you're at. And that possibly even within the same medical aid, um, you might have a network rate which is different to your uh, non-network rate, uh, those who signed up, those who haven't signed up. So those variations in rates. And I think the question is coming from, Erin uh, is just confirming that from, from her side as well. Thanks, Erin. Um, where we have varying rates, uh, are we allowed to charge different rates for, for patients in different regions or different branches? Or um, uh, there's, there's questions around varying rates. Um, so, so I think it's leaning back to that. Um, so so I, think, I think that question is, is, is an interesting one to answer. There's, there's varying rates. You, you can have different rates if they are justifiable and why are you charging different rates? And I think what we must always remember is what is the intent that's trying to be prevented and managed here? I'm gonna use the HPCSA as an example. Um, the HPCSA um, uh, will say that you can't discriminate against the patient and, 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 and charge them different rates uh, for, for the same services. Um, and what they're trying to avoid here is that you load the patient. So you have a typical rate of 100 Rand, but you see the guy arriving, you look through the window and you see they've arrived in a 1.2 million Rand um, car and you go, hang on a second, this guy can afford more, I'm going to charge him more. And I think we know that the HPCSA is there to protect the public and guide the professions. And they're guiding us by saying, but that's not cool behavior. But now the same scenario happens the other way, that your rate is 100 Rand. But an old lady walks in and she's a pensioner and she can't afford the fees that you typically are charging. You decide to provide a pensioner's discount and your 100 Rand becomes 80 Rand. Would you see that as a, a, a contravention on, a, on the HPCSA's rules to try and protect the public and guide the professions? I don't think so. so it, 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 but then it also becomes a, a, a gray area where people play around in that space and try and justify unethical, unfair behavior. So I think it's just important that you check and test your intentions of why you have a different rate. Um, in a specific area, and from what base are you doing that? Are you trying to load somebody on a on a rate because you just think that they can afford more? Yeah. Thanks. So Jim. yeah, the with regards to the Health Freshness Council, if you've if you if you've been reported, there has to be something you're being reported for. And it, you, the easiest thing is to go to the um, the schedule of fines, and you can see what exactly you can be reported for. If it's disgraceful, dishonourable conduct, or if it's uh, over servicing, you'd have to be reported for something. So if they want to report you for charging. 80 rand to the granny versus 100 rand. What would they report you on? There wouldn't be it wouldn't be a disgraceful conduct. It wouldn't be over servicing or under servicing. You, you're rendering a service. You just out of the, the, the goodness of your heart, uh, because you 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 have the the principle of beneficence that you want to do good for the person that you've dropped your fee. And one of the schemes flagged something in biokinetics with the experience. So the the experience, more experienced the practitioner, they the, the more they felt that they were worth. And then the the intern would charge a lower rate. 
and they flag that and say, well, why is this code for an intern got X at your practice? And why is the senior practitioner got Y? And again, you're an autonomous medical professional. If you justify that this is the reason behind and the rationale behind, and you, your, your, your decisions are made of, from beneficence that you're doing, doing good for the person, I can't see how I'd be flagged on the schedule of fines. There's, there's, no, there's no grounds for the complaint. I would again say that um, we also need to caution against, again, it's a theme that's come through quite a lot in the comments we've seen today, but we hear a lot from practitioners. It's where medical schemes are telling you what you can do, how you can do it, for how long you can do that, and what you can charge for it. Please, that has to stop. We can't have a tail wagging the dog. You need to determine in your practice what your fee is. You're allowed to charge the fee that you feel you're entitled to charge. That is a justifiable fee. Um, if you're in a place that's got a very high overhead costs, um, you've done a, a additional training, um, you, you, you otherwise qualified, you've, you've actually started accumulating your overhead costs to actually provide that service. Um, and you determine your rate and you provide that rate to the patient and they, they have an informed consent process to understand that rate and they know that that rate isn't fully reimbursable by the medical schemes. In fact, they must pay the full amount and claim a portion of it back from the medical schemes and it's all correctly contracted and it's an appropriate rate you've determined with a margin to run and grow a business. Um, then you've determined your rate accordingly and you need to then set that rate. It is a choice to bill a medical scheme rate. It is not forced to do that. And it is a favor that we do through to the patient to say, I'm gonna charge the medical scheme rate in order to protect your pocket. And I'm also going to almost send it to the medical aid and I'll chase them and I'll collect it and do all of that on your behalf. And you know what, I'm not even gonna charge you more than the RPL rate, even though I'm not administering your account for you as well. Those are your choices that we make. It's, we're not forced into that. Um, and you are able to charge your own rate and you are able to um, uh, to, to, to submit that through to a scheme. Now, we know that if you put a, a, a rate through to a scheme that's more than their benefit rate, they'll typically pay that amount or the, 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 the cut amount to the patient, um, which is punitive in, in itself. I'd love to see that um, uh, those concerns that were raised at the Competitions Commission inquiry um, uh, come to fruition because there was concern around that, and I do think it's, it's punitive. Um, but nonetheless, um, just be sure that it's very important and that, that, that you familiarize yourself with split billing versus balanced billing in this case. If the medical scheme is paying 100 Rand and you, your rate that you've determined for your practice is 140 Rand, you can charge the 140 Rand, the patient pays you, they claim back from the scheme and the scheme may pay them 100 Rand, the patient's out of pocket for the other 40. But what you can't do, that's balanced billing, what you can't do is split that bill and say, okay, I'm going to pretend there's a bill for 100 Rand and send that to the medical aid. They're going to look at that and go, oh, great, Neil's been billing the medical aid rate, we'll pay Neil the 100 Rand. And there's a separate invoice that goes to the patient for the 40 Rand. That is split billing, it's illegal. You may not do that. Yeah. That, um, Johan, you asked me uh, to pull my ear when, you, uh, when you're when shooting at the time. So, so I'm busy. <laughs> uh, this is me pulling my ear. Saying to you, <laughs> this, Time's running this out. Is, we, we, got, uh, we got seven minutes and we want to respect the time uh, and obviously get as much information through as possible. So I'm going to ask Neil maybe yeah. if you can wrap so us through. Uh, and just then quickly I'll... on these two, police sure. and legislation, uh, they go hand in hand. They're, they're the supreme authority. You, you have to look at the South African constitution as being paramount and then numerous acts and laws beneath that. And you can't look at one law in isolation. So as a medical professional, you have to keep in mind the, the Health Professions Act, the Council of Medical Schemes Act, the, the Children's Act, the uh, Consumer Protection Act, the Puppy Act. So you, you can't work in isolation. You can't use one act in isolation. I think that's, that stands in your favor as well. So when the, the, the medical scheme says, well, you can't charge this, well, there are other laws that would say, actually, you can charge a rate that you choose uh, if you can justify according to expenses. And Dr. Quind of, of the Health Professions Council, he's the ombudsman, and he's filling in as, as um, the head of the, the council at the moment. Um, he's very proactive on this. He says that, yeah, you should be able to, to bill for no-shows, and you should be able to bill for uh, the, the, the fee that you want to, to charge. Um, so yeah, that's where legislation comes into our favor. Just something to keep in mind though, is that we've got a luxury of having a professional body when it comes to uh, penalties and it's changing now. If you look at the consumer, how they are now going directly to the police or directly using legislation. And the, the, the case of Professor Beale in Johannesburg is going to be very interesting to watch uh, in terms of, of malpractice and what's going to happen with that because it might no longer be a, a scenario where we're governed by our peers, but we might actually be uh, taken to court more frequently based on, on the legislation going forwards and these case laws that, that are going to be formalized. But uh, the last block that's been hidden from everyone for the, the grand finale is something that you really need to be aware of is, is media and press. 
and the effect that that's going to have on your business. If you're billing incorrectly or unethically, uh, people don't want to go through the schlep of, of going through the Health Freshness Council. Where are they going to go? They're going to go into your social media. They're going to go into other people's social media. They're going to go um, and lodge a complaint. I've seen people on their Google Maps who are having a one-star rating because the, the person got billed and they felt that uh, they were charged too much or the person hostile in the way that they billed. And people are angry. And when they get angry, they're going to talk about it. So you have to be very careful. It's, it's, it's the next thing that, that, that uh, is going to be affecting us as practitioners is what, what uh, our patients say online with regards to our billing practices. Dion, do you have anything with that? Yeah, no, no, I agree. I think the Hello Peter is an example is where you end up being almost slandered there and you've got to pay a fee to, to give a proper response back to that space. Um, but I think it's important that patients have a place to, to vent and to raise these issues. Um, they should be able to come to you as a practitioner and have the conversation. Um, I think um, to, to, to maybe start summarizing and bringing this together is that you look at those, those um, complaints at HPCSA that I was referring to earlier. Um, while I said that 80% of them are, are billing, I, I could almost categorically say all 100% are communication issues. Um, it comes down to communication. You find a patient is disgruntled. They haven't got a, a, a forum or a place. They try and raise it with you as a practitioner. Um, you're not listening, you're not understanding, you didn't communicate up front that they're going to be liable for this. So it all comes down to communication. If we can just slow down to speed up, engage with the patient, spend time when you're onboarding your patient to be sure you communicate effectively to them, have records of those communications, uh, file those and be sure that you've let the patient know that there's no surprises. Um, you know, patients are willing to pay more for a service. If they know what they're in for, they're finding that there's value um, and that they've got a heads up on that one and there's no surprises that later on they suddenly have to pay this massive bill. So, so run it professionally. You're running a business. Thanks, Dion. Neil, maybe maybe a final word from your side, and then I'll uh, I think we'll wrap things up for the for the evening. Are there any questions? Uh, any pressing questions? Maybe we could touch on those quickly. I think uh, I think the one uh, question that we that did come through uh, kind of before we uh, started the process was really from Susan Swart, uh, which was uh, around triaging and whether uh, practitioners like herself, for instance, as an audiologist, um, has the, the right, let's call it, to, uh, to, to bill for triage prior to, um, to a virtual consult, given that that process takes a significant amount of professional time. So maybe, maybe you want to answer that one. So yeah, we were ping-ponging around with this uh, before the, 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 the webinar started, but it, it comes down to, is there a patient-practitioner relationship? has this individual engaged with you as a patient uh, and do you have informed consent? So if it's, a, if it's a, a, a kind of a survey that you put out into a school and school kids or whatever completes it and then gives it back to you, was there consent for that? Was there a patient practitioner relationship? And then what service were you actually rendering when you, you created the bill? So if it's just triage, um, I triage people when they phone me to make a booking, I, I kind of say, well, uh, what's your injury? Well, no, you shouldn't be seeing me. You should be seeing a physiotherapist. So go see the physiotherapist, then come back and see me. I can't build them for that conversation. It's my triage. So you have to see what kind of triage it is and how much time is, is spent with analyzing the triage. And if there's a report generated. So if you are doing work and there's a patient practitioner relationship, then yes, use your coding RPL document and the correct ICD-10 codes to submit a claim. If it's just kind of a, a, a Facebook poll or a, a kind of a, a random questionnaire that you, somebody's got back pain and they fill in an Oswestry questionnaire before they come and see you, unless you're doing something, you, you're rendering a service, um, I don't see how you could bill for that. Um, Dion, I don't know if you have any other uh, points, if you felt it's any, any differently to that. No, I think that, that, that covers it. I think it's the, it's the interpretation and application of what comes through, which is where you're applying your clinical mind, not billing for a patient spending their time in front of the telecompleting a, a, a form. Um, I think if we took it to that point, and I, I, apologies if I'm oversimplifying it, but I think we have to just explore the two extremes. Um, and then also in our conversation prior to this, we were just spilling into um, the elements of, um, of screening. Um, and, and, you know, is that, is that if you're doing sort of general screening at a school, for example, um, be sure that you don't step into the dangers of, of referring patients specifically to yourself, but where you are screening and you're saying there's a concern here with this child, they possibly need to consult the following discipline rather than me, um, there you're doing a service. But if you're now channeling those directly to yourself as if you're the only one who can provide those services, um, I, I think you'd be finding yourself wanting from an ethical point of view. Thanks, John. I'm going to uh, I'm gonna have to wrap there. Um, I think from my side, 
and from uh, from the webinar. Uh, just a sincere thanks, Neil, for your professional opinion. Dion, as always, your professional opinion. I can see we've got a host of questions that are that are unanswered. Uh, a lot of a lot of positive comments in terms of the session this afternoon. So really, thank you from uh, from our side for the for the contribution. Just a reminder that the webinar and the question and answer documents will be available on the easymed.solutions website, as well as all the past webinars, as I, as I mentioned in the beginning. You can also register there for, for next Thursday, four o'clock. Um, we will post the topic for you and, uh, and you'll be able to, I think, further guide your practice through this, uh, this difficult time, let's call it, but also into the future. What's been interesting is we've been conducting surveys in the market uh, amongst practitioners to understand some of the fear um, that is around um, managing profitable practices and practices that are sustainable. We, we're seeing a lot of um, concern around income, income generation um, and, and potential um, returning to the new normal. And um, I, I suppose the scary element is that maybe we are in the new normal and, uh, and practices won't go back to what they, what they used to be. So I think solutions around um, telehealth and telemedicine and billing, specifically ethical billing in those in those environments, is really critical. So, as a Spesnet uh, group, we uh, we've recognised the feedback we've got through those surveys, and um, as a result, we we want to make the EasyMed and Medici uh, application available to your practice to help you uh, create sustainability, to maybe allay some of that fear uh, for a two-month free process until the end of July. I think we've posted this. Um, uh, through the last couple of weeks as well. Um, and obviously there is no uh, commitment at the end of that period, uh, should you choose to uh, disconnect um, and not find value in the system. So we will assist you um, in that process. And, um, and I think uh, significantly um, in terms of getting all your new data uploaded and whatever you might need in that practice, we have uh, facilities to be able to assist you. So. From our side, I hope you found this incredibly informative and um, we sincerely thank you for your time. Um, we respect your, uh, your, contrib your attendance this afternoon and uh, we look forward to, to linking in again uh, with you next Thursday. So from all of us here at the SpaceNet Group, Neil, Dion, uh, Lani, in your absence, I'm sure you'd say something if you could. Um, we, uh, we will catch you next week. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Neil. Thank you. Thanks, Robin.